Hello and welcome to the Colorado Switchblade Podcast. This is another edition of the Weekend Rant, where things are a little different. Today's going to get pretty personal. Um, a lot of you may know that my wife, she's not dead anymore, but she died for about three minutes last year. Um, and she has been sick since the time we have met. We've been together close to 27 years now. And when you first meet someone and you fall in love with someone who has a chronic medical condition, you think you know what it means to, to, to be willing to live that life. But I can tell you that you have no clue what the fuck you're talking about and that you really don't know until you get 10 and 20, 25 years in and then to this day. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing for your partner who is sick with nothing they can do about it. It's not their fault. It's just a bad hand that they were dealt. And you kind of go into things thinking, I'm going to save this person. I'm going to make it better. I'm going to figure it out. I'm a smart person. I can, I can figure this out. But really all you figure out over time is that Sometimes all you can do is sit with them. Sometimes all you can do is hold their hand as they're in the, the just the nightmarish depths of chronic pain and vomiting. And it just goes on for days and those days lead to months and those months lead to years and those years lead to decades. And it, it never really gets easier. But the reality of it is you've fallen in love with this person and, and then started a family with this person. Now, we're going to be talking about um, the CDC today with some some guidelines that have had just severe detrimental effects over the chronic pain patient community um, over the last few years. And this has been something that's been building for, I would say, the last decade. But it's something that has shattered lives. It's put good human beings that are medical doctors behind bars for merely not wanting to abandon their patients and, and trying to give them a quality of life, doing their job. But before we, we get there, I wanted to take a few moments. It, it's not often that I write poetry. I'm writing all the time. Very little of what I write actually makes it out to public consumption. I think in according to Grammarly, um, in the past year, I have written close to two million words. Um, Grammarly every week tells me, you know, how many words they've checked and, you know, gives me a bunch of breakdowns. But in the past year, I've written close to 2 million words. Part of that is, and, and yes, sometimes I write poetry, sometimes I write prose. And I guess that's what you would classify this as. But let me take you back to when I wrote it. And this was over the summer. Um, my wife and I had separated because... She unfortunately had um, been taken off all of her, her pain medication due to these CDC guidelines, and she's not alone. This is happening to pretty much every chronic pain patient across the country, especially if you're younger. Seems to be a little bit better if you're a straight white male, especially if you're rich, um, that, that it's not nearly as much of a problem. But if you are a female, if you've had a history of sexual abuse, um, if you're a person of color, you've pretty much been abandoned. 
And the CDC is just now starting to admit to some of this. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But I wanted to start off this this episode with a piece of prose that I wrote. Um, I wrote it at a time when Shiloh, had just, Shiloh, my wife, had just had a heart attack. We had been separated. I had found an apartment for her about a, a half a block away so she could still be part of the girls and I's life. And I'll be completely forthright and honest with you here because I, I really don't know how any other, any other way to be. Um, when you take a person who is in nightmarish levels of pain 24 hours a day and and just their body is falling apart and you take away their pain management, they're going to go find other ways to numb that pain because it just becomes all-consuming. And unfortunately, Shiloh had found that vodka could could do that to a certain extent and um, certainly not in any sort of positive way. But, and I understood where she was coming from with it, and uh, but I, I just couldn't have it there with the girls and me. And so we, we found her a place, you know, again, just a block away and, you know, where we could take care of her and, and still make sure she was all right, but still you know, have that distance that we needed so that we we didn't have to have the full brunt of, um, you know, that alcohol use. And I will say that since her heart attack, um, she hasn't had a, a single drop. We've moved her back into the house. Things are, are doing much, much better. Her health is getting better slowly but surely. Um, but I have to I have to question whether or not um, any of this would have even happened before they took her off the pain medication. There were never issues like this. There was never a driving need to, to kind of find that oblivion of, of numbness so that the pain could subside for just a little bit. And it was just by chance, the luck of the gods that I had come over, um, and I was I was trying to convince her to go to the hospital, and by the time I had gotten there, she was more than ready to go. In fact, she couldn't even make it to the door. Um, she collapsed with a very rare heart attack, um, and and thank the gods I was there because I was able to to you know uh, call nine one one. The paramedics got there very quickly. I had been an EMT previously, so I knew some of what to do. Um, and and you know the stars just aligned that that she was it, she was not going to die that day. But she she was dead for about three minutes. She didn't have a pulse. Um, they life-flighted her down to Loveland, and uh, they put her into a medically-induced coma for a week. And I wrote this piece when the doctors were saying she probably was not going to make it in all probability. It was a time when I thought I was saying goodbye. And it was just a piece of me kind of thinking back to what life had been. And you have to understand, we, we built our life. We decided to have children and start a family and, you know, live this, this crazy artist adventure of a life. Um, when she had proper chronic pain uh, therapy, you know, when she had her, her pain management, she had the semblance of a normal life. So before I get into that, let's just let's go ahead and read this. It's entitled Heaven Under the Black Lights. I had a dream a few years back. 
It was around that time that I began to realize that my wife's condition had already taken away part of who she used to be. That parts of her mind and heart had already died. I would not see them again. We met at the age of 22, and it was in the early 90s in a nightclub in northern Colorado. I had just moved back to Fort Collins that very day. My friends helped me move, and we had just finished unloading the beat-up, rusted U-Haul, dirty, dusty, and sweating. I took them out to the north side of town to say thank you. The old Fort Ram was in the industrial district, and the building had once been a vast warehouse. It was under the blue-white glow of black lights that I first saw her crooked half-smile as I walked into the club with my friends in tow. She was the first person I saw as I walked past the bouncers, standing there, her white tank top framed by thin bracers, glowing under the black light. Her brown eyes alive with sparks of youth, plaid miniskirt, and high-top vans. I'll never forget that moment. She was a post-punk rock angel, fallen to the earth, and I fell for her right then and there. The dream I had harkened back to that night. Again, it was at a club, but this one at a bar a friend once owned where we had our wedding reception, the old starlight. But the black lights were there, old friends who were long dead, friends we used to meet every Saturday night to all dance our youth away, were there. And Shiloh was there. Greeting me just inside the nightclub door, half-crooked smile once more whole, eyes again sparkling, but this time wearing a golden dress with matching bands. She grabbed my hand and pulled me out onto the dance floor, and we once again danced the night away with all our old friends. Now, I don't know if I believe in gods or devils, angels or demons, but I do believe I had a fleeting glimpse of what part of my heaven will be, an angel under the black lights. So how did we get from a place in time in modern America where then a person who has a chronic medical condition who is, you know, medically disabled and has been for their entire adult life, you know, and getting treatment that allowed them to start a family and live a normal life? How did we get from there to where we are seeing skyrocketing rates of suicide amongst chronic pain patients? We are seeing patients abandoned. We are seeing doctors committing suicide. Indeed, our family doctor who would treat Shiloh up in Montana, um, he, he stood up for his patients' rights and the federal government came down with a hammer he wound up committing suicide, hanging himself with an electrical cord. When I was an EMT, I was part of the team that had to cut him down. How did we get to where we are now? And how do we fix it? Well, three days ago, the CDC um, released a revised and expanded pain treatment guidelines. Now, you have to understand... The guidelines that they released back in 2016 is the 500-pound gorilla when it comes to what we have seen recently, the political climate, the, the war on opioids um, and, and overdoses that Trump initiated. 
which really had nothing to do with chronic pain patients. If you look at the statistics, um, it, it's really apples and oranges. All it did was take a segment of the population who was already vulnerable, um, some of the most vulnerable, and just give them no hope whatsoever. Um, now, the climate's beginning to shift back, and I think part of this is on a long enough timeline, everybody's going to have someone they care about have to deal with chronic medical issues and chronic pain. It's just a matter of time as we grow older in our life experience that our loved ones are going to need some sort of pain control. And frankly, those are not the people that are out there looking for fentanyl and looking for heroin. It, it's a sad state of affairs that it is, it is 10 times easier. If that's the route someone wanted to go, they could go down to Denver, hour and a half drive, and find whatever they want. And with the new laws, you're much more um, likely to get put in jail for trying to go and get medical help and, and doctors be put in jail for trying to treat their patients than you are for going and trying to score heroin down on Capitol Hill in Denver. It, it's just a crazy upside-down world right now. So... There's a really good article in Reason Magazine, I'll put the links into the, uh, the little article that's going to go along with this, um, where three days ago on the 10th, they released a, um, a revised and expanded pain treatment guidelines um, that the CDC published that mentioned patient abandonment eight times. They also include two occurrences in bold and italics that clinicians should not abandon patients. Why are they saying this? Because that's what's been happening. It's been happening, and not since 2016. It's really been ramping up for the last decade. But patients have been abandoned. And again, this is all coming from a Reason article. It's written by Jacob Sullum and released just on the 10th. This gives you a, just a sense of the impact that the original version, and it's a disastrous impact, that the original version of the CDC's advice published in 2016 had on medical care. Something that's gone clearly terribly wrong when clinicians have to be reminded that they are not supposed to abandon patients. At the same time, the CDC's acknowledgement of the problem signals its willingness to address the needless suffering caused by the 2016 guidelines, which resulted in undertreatment, reckless tapering of pain medication, denial of care, and policies that prioritized reductions in opioid prescribing over the interests of patients. The original guidelines were aimed at primary care physicians and focused on prescribing opioids for chronic pain. They included grave warnings about the dangers of exceeding 90 morphine milligram equivalents, or MMEs, a day. Many physicians, pharmacists, insurers, regulators, and legislators read that threshold as a hard cap, meaning that it should never be exceeded, and the chronic pain patients who were already above it should be forced to comply with this arbitrary limit. Although the 2016 guidelines focused on chronic pain, they also touched on acute pain because long-term opioid use often begins with the treatment of acute pain. 
Um, for acute pain, the CDC said a prescription for three days or less will often be sufficient, while more than seven days will rarely be needed. As a result, the CDC notes that in the new guidelines, more than half of all states have passed legislation that limits initial opioid prescriptions for acute pain to seven-day supply or less. While many insurers, pharmacy benefit managers, and pharmacies have enacted similar policies. So why did all this misapplication happen and and to be fair they're not not they're not accepting responsibility for any of this they're just saying they were misquoted and and you know they, they put it out on the doctors um but really what we need to do is is look at how it's affecting the humans we love the people we love in our lives um you know because what this has done has, you know, put people into withdrawal symptoms, uh, huge amounts of pain, and serious psychological distress. I, I can tell you that my wife, in my opinion, was trying to drink herself to death because she had lost all hope. Even after Shiloh's heart attack, it has been a nightmare uh, trying to get her even the smallest dose of pain medication and this is something that I can say as having been by her side through this for 27 years, that it works, that it helps with her condition, helps slow down on her digestive tract, it helps with her shaking, it allows her to eat, it allows her to drink water, it allows her to, to stop the vomiting that happens every day, multiple times a day. I've had to go in and literally negotiate with the doctor every trip she has made. And there's been so many trips to the ER, to urgent care, to her primary care physician to try and get just some semblance of quality of life back. And this is while the doctors could see her visibly shaking like palsy. She had just had a heart attack, having to walk in with walkers. And it's like pulling teeth. It really comes down to a quality of life issue. And, you know, I've, I've, I've gained this rapport, this, this relationship with the doctor we've been working at with. Um, and his hands are tied politically and legally to a large extent. He acknowledges all of these issues. Um, but there's, you know, he also doesn't want to lose his practice. He doesn't want to wind up in jail. Um, and uh, so it, it's a really tough place for the doctors to be as well. Even harder for the patients who have to live the nightmares that, that the doctors only have to think about. Now, the CDC's recognition that the misinterpretation of its guidelines has resulted in needless suffering, patient abandonment, and adverse psychological and physical outcomes, including suicide, it's a start. And it, it's so overdue. Um, but really, it's going to take a change. It's going to take conversations like this. It's going to take people running for political office because so much of this comes out of the political realm you know we we see the news cycle we see the overdose deaths and we see the the overreaction that happens to that 
and unfortunately there are innocents that are swept up in it. Now don't get me wrong, yes, addiction and overdose is a major issue, but if you look at the statistics, it's not the same issue. Chronic pain patients still need to have some quality of life. And I'm just going to leave it at that. That's this weekend's weekend rant. I know it's been a somber week, uh, <laughs> weekend anyway. Um, hopefully tomorrow we'll be able to bring things upbeat a little bit more. I'm going to be going out to, I've been invited to the Meow Wolf Valentine Day extravaganza that they're having down at Meow Wolf Denver. I'm going to be recording some audio and pictures and whatnot to uh, maybe then some video to, to see what what's Valentine Day's like at Meow Wolf. Um, and uh, so we will talk with you more next week. Again, if you love the stuff you're getting at the Colorado Switchblade, uh, please help out, help support the cause by purchasing a paid membership. It's only $5 a month, um, less than one cup of coffee. And if you find yourself listening to these podcasts again and again, well, maybe you ought to think to help to support it. All right, folks, I hope you had a great weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I'm Jason Van Tatenove, and you've been listening to the Colorado Switchblade, Colorado's counterculture magazine.